Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Iron Giant, the 1999 film directed by Brad Bird, screenplay by Tim McCanleys and Brad Bird. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So before we jump in, our Spotify question for everyone is, what's your favorite animated film? Somehow choose and let wow. us know in the Spotify <laughs> app. Really big question. Yeah. yeah. It's been really fun seeing all, all the answers to the, the Bill Murray questions also from the, the Lost in Translation. There's, there's a lot of Groundhog Day, which mm. is understandable yeah. but yeah so let us know spotify listeners what's your favorite animated film now the iron giant so i had never seen the iron giant i feel like i'd seen lots of clips from it i'm trying to figure out where even i would have seen those clips but i think in various behind the scenes interviews with like brad bird they'd show like a clip here or a clip there or something. So I feel like I'd seen a lot of it, but hadn't seen it start to finish. Obviously, I'd seen Ready Player One, which, you know, is a very important part of the Iron <laughs> wow. Giants. The uh, sequel, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, so it was cool to finally see it. Uh, but I want to hear from you guys, especially Trisha and Alex, who saw it way back when. What was your initial, like, you know, viewing of this movie like? What was your relationship to it? I don't remember the conditions like super clearly, but I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters in 1999 when it came out. And I think I was in middle school at that time. Watching it again reminded me how much this, this movie stuck with me. Like I, I didn't realize it was one of those animated films from my childhood that was so deeply seared in my memory. But it, rewatching it, it's like, oh, yeah, like I remember this feeling and this emotion and this music and this shot. And there was a lot of like, I just remember seeing it in the theater. It was an unusually emotional animated movie experience for me. And man, like there's certain moments in this movie that do the Pixar thing for me, where it's it's like in isolation, I can see the moment at the end when the Iron Giant says Superman. <laughs> like mm -hmm. just play me that clip and like the moments that follow <laughs> and the music and everything. And like I will start to tear up without even seeing the rest of the movie before it. It just triggers <laughs> something in me. Uh, so all that is to say it was a very impactful movie on me. And I have not revisited it very often since then. And I'm kind of sad now because I watched it again last night. And it was like, wow, this movie is so well done. It feels so classic. And yet mm -hmm. it was made, you know, at the turn of the century when we were moving towards computer animation and the more Pixar approached everything. It felt like a Pixar movie done in an old fashioned way. Yeah. Which is something really special and unique. And there's not many other examples like it. And mm -hmm. of course, the Brad Bird effect, I could tell at the end, when his name came on the screen, it was like, I didn't know who he was at the time. Now it makes so much sense. That this movie is what it is. And it makes even more sense. They went off and did movies with Pixar after this, because mm -hmm. this is such it feels very much in the same family as the kind of Pixar spirit of just going all the way with something where it's like, no, we're going to really make you cry. We're going to really talk about death. We're really going to do it. We're not going to just, you know, tiptoe around it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I really appreciate this movie. And I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about it. And I had a reason to watch it again. Mm -hmm. Right. The Pixar movies that Brad Bird did being The Incredibles and Ratatouille and Incredibles 2, for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah. Trisha, what about you? So I saw this movie in 1999. And I remember even then, I'm sure I was also in middle school. I remember feeling like 
I was seeing an underdog of a movie, right? I think I mm. went to the theater like several weekends after it opened and we'd heard really good things. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of marketing for this. And, you know, we can get into it because I did a bunch of reading into like what happened <laughs> to the theatrical release of this movie. And it was just like studio nonsense, like ultimately, where they didn't have any faith in the movie. And so they didn't set aside the budget or the proper amount of time to really get the marketing out there for it. And then they realized they had a great movie on their hands and they thought about delaying to like get all the tie-ins and all the stuff so they could like, you know, sell all the toys and, and all of this and, and really push the marketing. But then they decided to go with their original release date and nobody saw it because it wasn't in the public consciousness. So I even remember having a sense of that in 1999 of going like, right people tell me I should see this movie. Like I'm sure classmates or somebody had said like, go see the other It's really great. But I was like, why is no one seeing this? And I, there was nobody in the theater really, you know, I was with mm. my family and I remember being specifically with my mom, my little brother and like no one was there. And we, but we walked out of it and we were like, wow, that was a great movie. We mm. just saw a great movie in the theater. And even at the time, like I said, I was in middle school. I remember thinking like, solid just like what a great story and it was this original story and felt so refreshing and you know just perfectly executed and it's just I so I've seen it a number of times since then and I, I have the same feeling about it where I was just like man everybody slept on this mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a really great movie it's beautiful I love how it looks you know it has this like rich Americana sort of like look to it. You know, it's inspired by all of these classic American artists like Norman Rockwell, which is the name of the town and, you know, N.C. Wyeth and some of my other favorite, like, you know, classic American painters. And it just is such a great movie. And it's one of these movies that I feel like film buffs love, you know, like sort of film people Mm. have our our like sort of pet collection of movies (laughs) where we're just like, we know about these movies. Maybe no Mm -hmm. one else does or everyone else missed them at the time. But those of us cinephiles we love all these movies and for some reason the iron giant always like ends up in that batch so like on twitter you'll sometimes see people just being like and anyway the iron giant is amazing um and kind of (laughs) holding it over there as like it's got a bit of a cult following it really does yeah Yeah. i still feel that way about it what a what a lovely lovely example of sort of yeah late 20th century animation that just kind of is a relic of its time in like the most i don't know endearing way possible totally yeah, it, it's weird because I feel like maybe this speaks to just the number of like cinephile people in my life. I totally missed it when it came out, but I feel like after it came out, I was being bombarded with like, you've mm-hmm. got to see it. Like, why haven't you seen this? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I and think then that you kind didn't of, listen to them for 20 years. <laughs> that's a good way to create resistance in me. I'm just going to wow. say. So that's why it was surprising when I then did go and do the research and saw that yeah, by its fourth week, it had only made just under 19 million after mm-hmm. a $50 million budget. So it definitely did not do well, which is surprising for me to hear knowing how beloved it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brian, what about you? This was your first time? watching. Yeah, it? just like you, I had never seen it before. I think it was one, it just wasn't terribly marketed, as you were saying, Tricia, but also I was 17 in 99. So I was seeing Fight Club and being John Malkovich in the theater, right? I wasn't going to see Iron Giant. And then <laughs> for no good reason, just never caught up on it since then. Um, I do really like Brad Bird. So I, it's been one of those movies on my list for the longest time of like, oh, yeah, one of these days I need to watch Iron Giant and just hadn't seeing it for the first time, you know, obviously much older and so much later, I still felt the 
it, it just works. You know, I sort of felt the magic of it. It kind of has, as you were saying, Alex, the weight of a Pixar film. Mm-hmm. And it has sort of, it has like the organic feel of a Miyazaki where just like things mm. feel like, like tangible. Like you're like this, I feel like these animated characters are are there and I could like be there. And then it has also this classic feel of like a like an old Disney movie from, you know, either like the Bambi. 60s. Like, right, not just because exactly. of the deer, but like the forests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was also just really cool to watch a a recent, somewhat recent in the age of film, um, hand-drawn animation movie. Mm-hmm. And even though the the Iron Giant is largely CG, it doesn't really feel like it. So it's sort of you know, it's like my brain, my kid brain didn't understand that Little Mermaid and 101 Dalmatians were made 30 or 40 years apart or something because it was like, oh, this all feels the same. And Iron Giant has that feel to it where it's like, it feels like the things are not quite 24 frames a second. Like everything feels like a little jumpy in that way that that sort of makes it feel a little bit warmer and a little bit more. I don't know. It, it gives it like a it's handcrafted, you know, you, yeah, you, you yeah, have that exactly. more organic feeling. All those things. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's what was interesting watching it for me also is is kind of picking up on that where it, it did, like you're saying, it had this the kind of Disney handcrafted feel, but also the Iron Giant and the way it moved in the frames. I was like, well, this must be CG, but it's mm. cool how they're blending it with the live action. Yeah. And then some of the camera moves. I was like, oh, this feels like this is like After Effects things happening. And so I looked it up and this was like one of the first movies to really use After Effects and mm-hmm. add like depth of field and stuff. So it was really cool to kind of see modern tools be used in the service of this organic textured feeling kind of thing like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your experience watching it, Michael. Uh, it was a very good movie. I, again, I had heard a lot about it and I watched it and it was like the things that I had heard and I saw them happen on the screen in front of me. <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> Trisha and I were yelling at Michael because he wasn't like sobbing and over the moon about this movie, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. There are just a lot of barriers that, that I think I have that are hard to overcome for a movie like this like animation is hard for me to sink into and like experience as if i'm in a world like that it feels like there's a screen in front of me again knowing the story so well and i also just am always in my kind of analytical technical mind so i was thinking more about like this is an after effects camera move that's happening on top of this other thing during the scenes or you're the worst person (laughs) 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 as he he says superman i was like oh i can see the you know the pixel count (laughs) i mean it's and i feel like it's the kind of thing where also it's you know if you know story like i feel like with everything i knew about it and from everything you know you know about movies from kind of like the first five minutes in you're able to understand okay this is the story and this is where it's going to go there were some surprises and turns and i i do feel like as you were saying alex that they take the time to address this pretty heavy theme of you know mortality and Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Am I a gun? Like, what does that mean? What would that be like to be something that is a weapon that doesn't want to be a weapon? Like, there are definitely heavy things in there. And I thought that was really interesting to explore via Vin Diesel, uh, who does a very <laughs> He's a, great. A good job. Yeah. He's a wonderful voice actor. Yeah. He is. Yeah. I mean, there, there's this interesting, this difference that you can feel when you're watching a movie that's not Disney. 
Um, and, and that even includes watching like Captain America or uh, Iron Man one, like the the pre Disney Marvel movies or something where it's like, mm. there's certain things that were just like, we're not quite going to go to that place. And what I loved about this was even though it felt like those, those classic Disney movies, it was like, yeah, but we are going to reference alcohol and sex. And like, there's going to be like kind of a scary train crash and we're going to mention religion and we're going to the whole thing, like accepting death and like, do I have a soul and stuff like that? (laughs) And it just felt like, like maybe Pixar, you know, like soul for instance is doing that. But for the most part, there's this sort of these kinds of movies tend to not go there. So when they do, watching them as an adult it's exciting because i feel right i feel like this movie is still for me and it's not just like oh this is just for kids and that's it you know yeah i'm a massive fan of the don bluth animated movies mm. and all of those ones that he made and they all have this weird edge to them where they're like very upsetting mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not all the way but you know so for those that don't know like the classic don bluth is like all dogs go to heaven or an american right. tale mm-hmm. or oh, american um, tale yeah that's like don that bluth yeah. yeah anastasia was sort of the last great don bluth movie which you know is not disney although it often gets lumped in with those because it's a musical but anyway so don bluth made all of those sort of like weird dark animated movies that were like the, the alt disney kind of like <laughs> thing that you could go see and this feels like that to me like it yeah. has that sort of like weird vi- edge vibe to it where there's something a little bit transgressive about it even though it is ultimately really wholesome mm-hmm. it you know kind of has this political edge to it and also the darkness that you guys are kind of talking about and you know there's like a nuclear bomb strike at the end of this movie yeah. and mm-hmm. yeah it, it kind of has that feel to it one of the emotions I was talking about that I remember so clearly from being in the theater was how scary the Iron Giant got. Oh, yeah. When it goes into like, like war activation mode is very disturbing to see that because he's he's been established as the big friendly best friend of the kid. And you do have this, this is, there's the existential dread of like, oh, but he could just lose himself any minute and just destroy you and kill everybody and the movie like does that like there's a junkyard scene where he almost kills the kid right right which is really intense yeah well, yeah and the um the meeting it's like one of the best meeting the creature scenes from any like et or mm. i don't know if you guys uh, have seen the original pete's dragon mm-hmm. from way back which is like super similar first act of those movies like the old crazy sailor is like i saw this thing and everyone's <laughs> right. like get out of here you're just drunk and the kid's like then the kid finds it you know but the fact that that sequence where he meets the giant not only is like so beautifully shot like that reveal shot the power plant when you first see his eyes uh-huh. and things but then it's like it's scary and it's very active and things are happening and and like it's not just ooh, there's a weird creature that i'm like gonna go and look at and touch and that kind of thing it's like you are in danger and things are happening and this, and that does set the tone for what their relationship is going to be throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's a great introduction for Hogarth too, even though we've already met Hogarth. Hogarth mm-hmm. has his own great introduction in the diner. You know, that sequence that you're talking about, Brian, offers him a choice where he has to run in and pull the switch down to go save right. the giant right, right. who's tangled in the power lines. It's like, it's just really good screenwriting. I don't know. You could probably do this with almost any scene um, in this movie, but sort of like break down why it's like an effective scene. Mm-hmm. There's so much about that power plant sequence that really works, not just visually, but from a character standpoint as well. And the little payoff later where the giant brings yep. him the switch. Now we understand the giant has that, that re- he's 
like because we don't know yet right exactly a complete dumb robot is whatever but like oh he has enough understanding to know a thing happened and you are responsible for the thing uh, and you know just by him like dropping that switch in front of him yeah and speaking of intros how much do you love you're talking about the one with like the sailor and and which i think is mm at walsh right Uh of course but it's like he's like oh i see the lighthouse and then he that turns and you see the two eye beams yeah so coming out of the giant's face it's just such a great visual and really scary but such a great visual introduction for the giant yeah yeah there's so many beautiful shots in this oh my gosh i feel like like that was the moment the first moment where i was like i see you brad bird like that's Mm -hmm. that's the brad bird kind of like hyper like using all of the tools, the visuals, everything to kind of tell the story and make every moment a surprise and, and keep a kind of visual momentum happening along with the story that's being told. That was definitely a cool moment. For sure. This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is brought to you by the new and improved Ting Mobile. When I'm going in to sign up for something like a phone plan, I'm looking for flexibility. And that's precisely what Ting Mobile provides. Whether you want a little data or unlimited data, Ting Mobile has a plan for you. You can get talk and text for just $10 a month, data from $15, 5 gigabytes for $25, unlimited for $45, whatever you need, they have it. Just go to screenplay.ting.com to check out their plans and see how much you might save. Along with your plan, you'll get access to the best nationwide coverage in America, as well as Ting's award-winning customer service. And it's easy to switch to Ting, which if you know me, you know I like things that are seamless and simple. Just head to screenplay.ting.com and check to see if your phone is compatible, which it most likely will be because Ting works with pretty much any phone, even the latest iPhone, Galaxy, and Pixel devices. Then just create an account, pick the plan that's right for you, and Ting will send you a SIM card that you can pop into your phone and activate in minutes. You can even keep your phone number. And you'll get a $25 credit when you sign up with our link, screenplay.ting.com. So see how much you could save and get $25 off at screenplay.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. The whole thing where we then go from that into the diner, it's so... It's just so cleverly um, placed, I guess, in this like mid-century like time where it is, you know, because it takes place in the 50s. So it gives it this rich visual style, but it's also so thematic where if you watch sci-fi movies from the 50s, they start this way, right? They start with like the introduction of a thing falls from outer space and then like somebody sees it on the outskirts of town and it's referencing like 50s sci-fi paranoia in its, you know, plot and construction as well as its visuals. And so, you know, as a kid, you don't have to know that this is like, oh, we're doing like a Invasion of the Body Snatchers or, you know, any of those like 50s sci-fi movie things that were referencing some of that stuff. But that's how it starts and what it is. And it's like, I don't know. It's just really cool. Well, it's a great integration of, yeah, art style themes that are relevant, to, you know, the setting. Like it, all of it is acting as one. And those are the best movies where it's just, you know, we talked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently and had that movie very different from this one. I shouldn't compare them. <laughs> but similarly, I think they do both try to have an integration across all those different levels. And I, I really appreciated that for for the first time watching it as an adult and just wow this movie is so efficient in so many ways and is is also yeah doing theme in art in plots in setting in time you know all those things and they didn't want brad bird to make it set in the 50s like 
they wanted him to like, why, why can't it be in modern times? And right. he was basically like, because themes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and because everything, but but mostly because themes. I just want to say, like, this movie isn't that different from Portrait of Lady on Fire. You have the protagonist <laughs> meeting this other character who may or may not be dangerous, but then they form a relationship, which is always a little tenuous. And then, and you know, and they fall in love. It's great. <laughs> I was also getting some Terminator 2 vibes. No, of, oh, yeah. like, totally. Adopting a robot that's like child, but also father figure, question marks. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Also could great. be very dangerous. Right, yeah. exactly. Right. And I thought what was interesting is the fact that we we never get a backstory for the giant, we don't know right. why it's a robot with feelings, you know, because it is tricky anytime you're like, look, I built this robot and it has feelings. You're like, what? Why? How? But this is like, uh, who knows? This is some alien technology. You can put himself back together, which affords you the ability to say, yeah, it has a soul because there is no explanation. So it can just be this thing. But it did also make me think how impressive Terminator 2 is that they that you do form a relationship with a total robot without the robot ever actually like having anything that we would call emotion. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about Terminator 2. Sorry, Michael. You <laughs> well, just that I happened to watch a, a deleted scene from the movie mm. that they released, I guess, uh, when they did the, the restoration or whatever. So those aren't deleted scenes. Those are new scenes that they made in 2015. Oh, interesting. Really? Yeah. I think they finished them. I think they were originally, yeah, they were storyboarded, oh, okay. but they hadn't been completed. And mm -hmm. so that, so they, they weren't included for that reason. Yeah. Okay. But one of them is, uh, you know, when the giant is sleeping in the junkyard, uh, there's like a dream sequence, mm -hmm. basically. Right. That wasn't in the movie, the version I mm -hmm. watched, because I watched it on Hulu and it's like the original version. Yeah. But then I saw a video clip online of this dream sequence. Right, which is interesting because it, it kind of does explain a backstory. Like, you, you know, you kind of, by the end you know, extract this is a machine that has been built to be a weapon of some kind from outer space. Uh, but the stream sequence, like you see a bunch of iron giants like marching mm. together toward like a city and images of a destruction and the planet blowing up even at the end. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so it was, it was just interesting how it did kind of fill in more backstory more clearly, I guess, of like this is one of many potentially you know, robot people that has been built specifically to destroy worlds. And so it was just kind of interesting to have that backstory confirmed and actually like clarified to that level. Uh, and I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about knowing that. But I just thought it was interesting that that was at one point in the movie, but not in the final version. It's interesting because the conclusion almost confirms that anyway for me because of just how insane you know the technology becomes and you know he has these like almost like black hole weapons or something <laughs> he like, has a lot of weapons he has a lot of different yeah. kinds of weapons different kinds of awesome you know incredible style weapons um uh, so yeah i think that was to me it, i just assumed okay this means he's designed just to destroy everything and that's his real purpose but the beauty of the movie is him because of this amnesia dent in his head he has this opening to form a different personality and path. Mm -hmm. Well, and at the time, this movie was criticized for being kind of an E.T. knockoff mm. because there's a lot of similarities with like from just sort of the basic construction of like being from outer space, young, you know, boy who needs a friend. They form a relationship, but the government wants to get 
the being from outer space. And there's, you know, conflict in the boy's family. His dad's gone. Here are these other father figures for him. Anyway, it's like there's a lot that's there with E.T. And I think that those comparisons are valid including the one where we don't know hardly anything about E.T. and sort of we don't really know anything about the giant either. Mm. So it's a wise move. It worked really well in E.T. It's a wise (laughs) move not to like over explain your being from outer space because you're placing the focus on the relationship that he's forming with you know, whoever it is on Earth. Yeah, and ultimately the movie is not about the Iron Giant. The movie is about how the world reacts to this. Of course. To this weapon, you know what I mean? So it's actually stronger thematically to not give us an explanation. Definitely. You know, yeah. Part of what you said was so edgy about the movie, Trisha, is that it does feel political, you know, in a way that Mm -hmm. a lot of Disney movies probably wouldn't want to go there. You know, it's making a pretty big statement about gun violence in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It's talking about just American militarism and yep. the Cold War. It, it, it's it's doing a lot of really interesting things that you don't usually get from this like classic Disney aesthetic sort of movie. He even has um, you know, characters like Dean. He's got he's got like this beatnik character beatnik, I love it. with the kind of yin yang symbol on his bathrobe. He's mm-hmm. drinking espresso and making junkyard art. <laughs> <laughs> Another weird feeling I had when I was that age was I was discovering my <laughs> who I was attracted to. Did you have a crush on Dean? Because I have a huge crush on Dean. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Dean was my first like animated crush. Like I was like, yes. I was like, I'm really attracted to this animated character. <laughs> Same. Dean is a dreamboat. His jawline, his stubble. Oh, yeah. Like he's so cool. He sips espresso. Like Harry Connick Jr.'s <laughs> performance yeah. is there. It's yeah. He's a great character. I don't know. We, I want to talk about Dean more because he's a really great character. I mean, I really love Dean. Yeah. It's the way that the character's written, though. Like, there's really great writing in the dialogue and just sort of in the whole construction of who Dean is. We'll, we'll get to him. But yeah, no, I agree. I, I think E.T. comparisons aside, I think that there is enough, like you're saying, with like the Cold War and the very specific what the giant is, you know, no one really thinks that E.T. is like dangerous or going to destroy the world or whatever. Right, like, right. There's lots of really loaded sort of themes in who the giant actually is that I think differentiates this movie quite a bit in in the sense that like, I don't know, as someone who loves E.T. and who also loves the Iron Giant, I don't think of them as being the same movie. I think of them as being really dramatically different and and um, or at least really special in their own ways. It's also not the worst thing to be a lot like E.T. It truly isn't. <laughs> right, <yeah>. Like, <laughs> make an E.T. knockoff. As long as you do right. a good job on it, you know, you win, as far right. as I'm concerned. In some ways, I don't know if it's like the Pixar thing, but but there's just this like, you know, do what works. Like, go toward the fundamental storytelling things right. and use those things to tell your story. And so, yeah, I, I think there's this movie clearly had a lot of influences, but it, I, it does feel like you're saying, Trisha, that it's, it's telling its own story that is unique and different and has a different theme and, and all that stuff. And it is interesting, you guys mentioning Dean, since we're here, I mean, we might as well. Yay! The Dean character, I think, was something that I did not, had not encountered in my, you know, various clips or whatever that I've seen of mm. the movie. And so he was definitely a surprise and is kind of this interesting, you know, yeah, he, he kind of is like a father figure ultimately, but he also doesn't seem so much older than Hogarth that that he can't just be like like an older brother. Also, I don't know. There was just right. the, mm-hmm. it was a, a unique relationship, I feel like, that I hadn't seen before between Dean and Hogarth and 
I feel like that their relationship is a big part of the movie also yes. and is yeah. one that I haven't seen on screen before. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's he at Dean and Kent, you know, Christopher McDonald's character, they may <laughs> be the same age for all we know, but there's such different sides of the spectrum of, of the themes in this movie where you right. have the beatnik character who feels like familiar, like he could be an older brother to the character. And he's like, super chill with the giant right he's like hey man like let's all get along it's all fine and then you have kent who is this i am a grown-up and i am the government and i am all these things and like this is dangerous and we have to catch him you know so it is sort of that it's not even about their actual age but it's sort of about their their maturity level and which things the people who are maybe trying to be more adult are being less so you know that kind of thing well and i think it's really interesting in the writing so obviously dean and kent are set up to be yeah two sort of father figures potentially for hogarth right Mm -hmm. or two different models of men if you want to just put it that way right Mm -hmm. kent is constantly infantilizing hogarth like he's calling him sport and you know scout and the like 18 things that he calls him in that sequence which Mm -hmm. are really great he's like hey buddy but he's He's kind of talking down to Hogarth and trying to control Hogarth and basically, you know, taking all decision making power, all agency away from Hogarth and treating him like a kid really aggressively. Like he moves into their house. Right. Right. (laughs) Starts trying to act like he's in charge of Hogarth, essentially. Right. In contrast to Dean, who is constantly asking like Hogarth, what do you want? How can I help? Like, what do you feel about this thing? And so, you know, you have the scene where Dean invites him in and gives him coffee and they mm. like are talking about, you know, Hogarth's problems at school <laughs> and whatever. And he's like, you know, just be yourself, kid. Like he is giving agency and like helping Hogarth. You know, it's kind of a coming of age story for Hogarth. And Dean is there to sort of facilitate that and treat Hogarth like an adult, essentially, or like at least entrust him with some responsibility. He's still looking out for Hogarth, right? Like Mm -hmm. he's ultimately, you know, the scene where he saves Hogarth, like tackles him out of the way because the Mm -hmm. giant's going to shoot him. It's just like a really beautiful scene where Mm. he's the one looking at like actually looking out for Hogarth, even though he seems like he's, you know, doesn't care what Hogarth does. Right. So it's this. That might be my favorite scene. Actually. Lovely revelation that Dean has got his back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And Harry Connick Jr.'s performance in that scene, like he's mm-hmm. genuinely rattled. Like he like he is really protective of Hogarth and is really scared for him in that moment. And I, I really appreciate this usually chill, you know, just kind of whatever goes guy he really cares in that moment. You can feel in the performance. Sure. And that he understands the gravity of the situation also. Right. Like he's able to, you know, understand that this is a seemingly friendly giant, but also when laser beams start coming out, like this is a a serious problem that needs Mm -hmm. to be taken seriously. And so seeing how much, how afraid that makes Dean, I feel like is also what makes giant feel so sad. Like seeing how much he is, put fear into other people so sad makes him that's yeah, a good point do his his sad walk away yeah it starts snowing immediately then the snowfall yeah, is immediate snowfall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think that's a really good point that you just raised michael which is that dean's reaction in that scene is such a contrast to everything we've seen from dean thus far so like mm-hmm. when the giant jumps in the lake 
and creates a huge tidal wave. And then we see Dean just floating, but while still sitting in his beach chair (laughs) and like his facial expression doesn't change, right? That's how we're used to seeing Dean react. I love that moment when the truck drives up. He's like, you're in the road. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Such a perfect like comedic beat. Exactly. Well, and it's interesting going back to Kent, like I, (laughs) there's so many little little tiny moments that I find so hilarious in this movie. Like when the potholder is on the wall with just like the goofy like dog face or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like he he feels so like uh, ashamed and lame talking to this like higher up general who's dismissing his claims. He can't stand to look at this like silly dog (laughs) face looking back at him because that's how he feels. And he has to turn it around to like not see it. There's little touches like that. They really give away like character psychology that don't have to be there. but. I can just feel Brad Bird having some fun. Yeah. There's, again, I feel like I've talked about this a few times recently, but one of the best traits for like a villain is just raging insecurity. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Which is just Kent's. It's just the most insecure person of all time. Yeah, I think that was what reminded me of uh, of Miyazaki was, like you were saying, Alex, those little moments that don't have to be there, but just make the movie feel like, oh, now this feels like a real thing. And it doesn't just feel like mm. we did the bare minimum to like animate this story, you know, the way we had to. And having just watched Ratatouille for the first time, too, like the the animations of the this non-human character in both movies, which sort of feel so true to the thing it is, whether it's a rat or a robot but then also feel like they translate to human emotions so well too. You know, the giant sort of, you have the playful animations where he's like learning how to sit and everything, but he's so kind of sterile at the beginning, but then you see him, he has sort of this confused smile, the way that his face is designed, as opposed to like Iron Man, right? Where his face is designed to like look pissed off all the time. Iron Giant is like always sort of (laughs) like kind of curious and, and excited to like see what's next. And then, throughout the course of the movie, like his eyes start changing, like even the colors start changing Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing to then the point, maybe my favorite payoff of this like animation evolution that happens with this character is when they're falling, just the care with which he cradles Hogarth. He's just like so careful to hold him, you know, and it just feels so tender and human for, for this character that we have only spent 80 minutes with to see him go from being this machine to being a a person for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he put him down? He could have just put him down also, but the, the- <laughs> well, the Eagles could, could just come and fly him too. <laughs> the thing that made me laugh was uh, when he like saves the kids who are falling off the building near the end. It's like he puts out like a very, like a hard metal surface below them, as opposed to like this, like, like right at like right above the <laughs> snow they were about to fall in. Right? Right. Did he save them or did he, made he just it worse. make it more painful? Yeah. Lots of little moments like that throughout for me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. But I feel like one of the Brad Birdie kind of things that you can see in this a lot in the Giants design is that his individual pieces seem to be sentient. Right. 
Where when his hand is like, I love the oh, sequence. Oh, it has like a head, like <laughs> right where his hand is in the house and like it's you know crawling around and it is essentially like a mini version of the Iron Giant that's you know in the house. I don't. It's just such a cleverly, I don't know. It's such a clever extension of what might you have to do if you had a giant like in your house, right? Or you know that kind of thing. Like what antics, what fun and games can we have here? It's a mm-hmm. really yeah. I mean, I feel like with movies like this, the fun and games are the thing that set it uh, like a cut above. Like you're talking mm-hmm. about, Brian. Like you could do the bare minimum, right? But something that puts it a cut above is pushing the premise and imagining what might this also entail. So if all of his pieces can crawl back to him and, you know, when he's been dismantled or whatever, what is the logical extension of that? Well, are they not then maybe somewhat sentient? Are they not maybe mini robots or mini, you know, versions of the giant himself? And if so, what does that mean? And so I love that as a design for a sequence. And that sequence in the house is just so much fun. It is fun. It is the one of the few times in the movie, though, where I went, oh, this is just the writers going, well, it's a giant. Like, we can't take it trick or treating. (laughs) We can't, like, sneak it into the the grocery store or whatever, you know? So it's like, what do you do? Well, let's just take a piece of it and put it in the house. And then it can get into all the antics and stuff like that. It's still fun. But it was one of the moments where I'm like, oh, they did this because they're like, there's only so much you can do with a giant when it's like the whole fun of I have a secret creature friend is the sort of in the house antics. The near misses. Yeah. Well, yeah. And yeah, you have to hide it, right? Right. When it's a 50 foot giant, Mm -hmm. your hiding places are pretty limited. So yeah, that makes sense. But I still think it's really fun. Yeah. But like watching it, I was like, this is yeah, absolutely really fun you know, fun and games situation and watching all the near misses and all that stuff and the way that the hand animated and travels is kind of like like evokes, you know, like a, a dog or some kind of animal where one of the fingers well, is it, it has like one finger, yeah, as the head. Yeah. head yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they find a way to make it, you know, you can like read the personality of it. My brain was then going, why does this have a personality? Can it see out of its <laughs> yeah, finger? Yeah, why yeah. is it watching TV out of its finger? It is watching TV. <laughs> yeah. I think I had that thought when I was watching him like Michael's going to be bothered that this finger looks like all the other fingers and yet it is acting differently like a different organ. I mean, and it's all like, again, I think it's all like fun and good. It's just like those logical like bumps that sometimes make me like stop and think about it. And then I go off into a tangent of like, well, yeah, how would you like, what should it be if not that? And like, the movie's not concerned with that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't pertain to the theme. And that's that's the whole thing. I do feel like this is kind of bumping up against one of the the things that I was thinking about while watching the movie and kind of harkens back to our conversation about Ratatouille, where we were talking about on the patron exclusive episode of Ratatouille, that part of what was weird is not like the the allegory of the rats to humans and kind of not quite understanding. I was having trouble like kind of buying in of like, what are we saying about humans via the rats? Like, am I do I think of these characters as actual rats or do i think of them as stand-ins for humans Mm. and sometimes it's both and sometimes it's neither Mm -hmm. i was having a little bit of that with the giant where i have never considered myself a weapon and so i've never (laughs) like pondered you know i am like what does it mean for me to be a gun or not you know there are obviously ways where humans can be violent and like you can extrapolate it was so clearly about like i don't want to be a gun that i was having a little bit of trouble like making that leap and and reaching the empathy of like oh yeah i've wondered also like what does it mean to be a 
gun. And I'm like, what would I do if I were a gun? <laughs> so just saying that out loud. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, the original book by Ted Hughes was written during the Cold War and, and very much about the Cold War. You know, so you have, uh, I'm going to save some of this for my lesson, but you have this idea of there is this scary opponent that uh, mm-hmm. that we don't know what's going to happen with this. and We have to be in the defensive all the time, da, da, da. What you're not thinking about is that's also how the opponent feels, right? So the Cold War was this time of everyone feeling like like their own country was either the weapon or the thing that the weapon was aimed was pointed at, you know. So I think it was at which we've seen in our lifetime too, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. With with just sort of there is this entity out there that is scary and we don't understand it, but also does what does that make us do? It makes us right. become on the offensive and now we're the scary thing and now we are you know pointing fingers and possibly doing much worse things because now that's who we are so i think that that to me that's sort of what i got from it was i agree with you it's like oh i'm not identifying with oh i what if i was born as a as a killing machine or whatever but (laughs) it is this idea of like peace is a two-way street basically so it's like you you know you are seeing this scary other but it's actually being humanized rather than just being this like thing that's out there somewhere in the world and there's a very deliberate construction in this movie about like the giant only becomes a gun when people are pointing guns at him right and so that's like a very cold war like Mm -hmm. you're talking about kind of you know reciprocal violence right where the cold war is all about like who's gonna strike first and um that's going to bring about the end of like, you know, all life, essentially, um, if someone, you know, pushes the button first, pretty much. And so Dean is, you know, running around trying to get everybody to stop firing at the giant because that's what's causing his reaction to be a gun. And so I think within that construction, Hogarth very clearly framing it to him as a choice of like, they might continue shooting at you, but you have to make the nonviolent choice in response, I think is a very human message, right? We get, you know, we get defensive. We're not designed to automatically be killing machines any more than the giant is. But when we feel like people are threatening our lives, or when we feel like there's violence around us, we have the option to make give a nonviolent response mm-hmm. instead of the immediate violent mm. you know counter reaction and so for me the allegory is rock solid it's also thematically built in like we said to the world yeah um so and to the giant as a character which you know it's dean that finds out really early on oh hogarth was pointing a ray gun at him that's why he responded the way that he did mm-hmm. yeah it's like the giant isn't a stand-in for an individual it's a stand-in for just a, a society a social yeah. Uh, right phenomenon mm-hmm. i think yeah. so the allegory works <laughs> <laughs> michael <laughs> so there rock solid thematically <laughs> i mean i don't know you know can a giant have a soul like it's made of metal I don't, that's a, a big question i think that it the movie strays into that it probably doesn't need to yeah but just to establish that it does have sentience right that he can make a choice because we see that earlier where he fires at hogarth we never would have thought the giant would do that. So the fact that he right. can choose something different later on, we kind of have to stray into soul territory. But yeah. Right. And the other important uh, narrative question is the giant eats. Does it poop? Yeah. I mean, I've thought a lot about that. Infinitely eats metal. <laughs> yeah. Metal poop. 
why would it be hungry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were already a lot of like toilet humor jokes. So I don't know. I think it doesn't because why didn't they? I feel like they would have made use of that unless that's a deleted scene somewhere. There wasn't that much toilet humor. There was just the, the laxative. There was 100% more than you would expect. Yeah. In, like than you would see in a Disney movie. Perhaps. Yeah. I sh- that's the first thing I should have cited when I was talking about how edgy this movie is. It's just the amount of poop that's in it. Yeah. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from the Iron Giant. Before we do, again, just want to remind people we have a Patreon. It's been very fun. This week on the Discord, there's been a lot of just news updates about casting of Knives Out. (laughs) That's how I find out about who's cast as I go to our Discord and people are talking about it. And Brian, I think you offered up your own custom casting of what you would want to see. So it's a lot of fun conversation, as always, over on the Discord. Okay, so... Lessons from Iron Giant. Alex, do you want to start? I mentioned earlier just how efficient this movie is. And one of the scenes that really struck me as being a great example of doing a ton of things at once is that opening diner scene where we meet Mm -hmm. so many of the characters. You've got Hogarth bringing in a pet animal that he feels bad for that he wants to take care of. And it's in a long line of, you know, wild animals he's wanted to take care of. Uh, we meet his mom and find out just kind of what the family situation is. She's a single mom, overworked, loves her kid, but is just kind of like stressed out. We get to meet Dean and we see how Dean stands up for the kook, you know, the town kook and the way he, you know, he goes out of his way to deal with the squirrel in his pants to not, <laughs> you know, get Hogarth in trouble. So it's, it's just a really great example of what I think most scenes in the movie are doing, which is either either doing a setup or a payoff or doing something thematically, or all those things at once. It's less than 90 minutes, but it feels like a really full movie. Like, it doesn't feel yes. like a skimpy 87 minutes. It mm-hmm. feels like a full-fledged... I almost felt like it was a two-hour movie from all the all that I got out of it. You know, it's a very short animated movie. And that's just a testament to the writers and to Brad Bird for just making sure every scene was doing something and not having... Even the fun and games still, was. they were often setting up a setup that was going to come back to emotionally devastate you later. And uh, I really respect the care they put into making sure every scene of this movie counted and wasn't just there for, you know, toys making, you know, iron giant toys. (laughs) And we got to have another type of iron giant. So here's another thing, you know, it, it it doesn't feel like the movie's worrying about any of that. It's just Mm -hmm. about streamlining and maximum emotional uh, effect. So, yeah. Yeah. I love this movie. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Agree. Like you said, the the care that's being taken, you can really feel that. And I feel like that is kind of a, a has become a Brad Bird like hallmark almost of everything mm-hmm. care is being taken to tell the story first and foremost. And you can tell that he had an unusual amount of creative control. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. nobody was expecting much from this movie and it was on a really rushed timeline. And so they basically were letting him make, even though it was his directorial debut, they were letting him make a lot of just decisions on mm-hmm. his own as long as mm-hmm. he was keeping the thing on schedule. 
So yet another great argument for <laughs> giving creative control to the creatives. <laughs> Imagine that. Hmm. Indeed. Yeah, Trisha, what's your lesson? Just want to talk briefly about the design of Hogarth as a protagonist, because this kind of like kid and creature movie only works if you have a really great kid. Mm. And right. Hogarth is a really great kid. <laughs> he is just fearless and really funny. You know, he's got this rebellious streak. But you're right, Alex. The first thing that we see about him is that he wants to take care of something like mm -hmm. and he's compassionate. And so I love the the scene where his mom is like, OK, I have to work late at the diner. You know, don't stay up late. Don't watch any scary movies. Don't eat any junk food. He's like, sure, of course not. I definitely won't. <laughs> and then, of course, we see him doing exactly that. So we know he's disobedient and stubborn, which are things that he's going to need later. Mm -hmm. He has to have that to outsmart Kent and to be willing to stand up to Kent. We know that he is curious and, you know, fearless. He goes out into the woods like he prefers to watch scary movies. He goes out into the woods at night. It's just a, a wonderful like alchemy of character traits for a young hero. He has everything that he ultimately ends up needing. And all of it is set up right at the beginning, you know, and developed and sprinkled throughout that makes him a really lovable and B gives him everything that he's going to need to like, you know, ultimately be a really good friend and sort of like the giant has to care about people. So it has to care about Hogarth, but Hogarth also has to have this like beautiful humanity to him that the giant can choose and model, right? Because ultimately the giant is modeling who Hogarth is. Right. And so this is just like a lovely design for a protagonist and especially for a young one. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Hogarth is so well designed in all the ways that you just spelled out. Like he does everything for this movie like but effortlessly also like i feel like he's effortlessly everything in a way that only happens from like meticulous thought and planning and the voice actor is really good also it's like really good for voice acting eli marienthal yeah mm -hmm. like definitely helps sell uh all of it turns out kids are people so anytime <laughs> you're designing a kid protagonist you could just design a protagonist because kids are also people i'm just right. saying have emotions complexity kids are people tm <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome brian what's your lesson uh yeah we talked about it a lot but this is just a great example of how to use time and place you know setting to support your story and your yep. theme obviously again the source material comes out of not too long after the actual time it was set but regardless like like trisha was saying the studio wanted to set it in modern day and have like a hip-hop dancing dog or whatever like just all that kind of stuff like no thank you <laughs> yeah, the, the cold war is such a powerful setting to introduce the idea of a weapon everyone is scared of who will only attack if you attack it first you know um there's a quote by brad bird where he says the main setting looks Norman Rockwell idyllic on the outside, but inside everything is just about to boil over. Everyone was scared of the bomb, the Russians, Sputnik, even rock and roll. This clenched Ward Cleaver smile masking fear, which is really what the Kent character was all about. It was the perfect environment to drop a 50 foot tall robot into. And, and that is, again, why there is so much of that 50 sci-fi, because, because so much of it was mm -hmm. an allegory for what was going on at the time. Exactly. And I think that what's cool, too, is if you are familiar with the Cold War, then it enhances the movie. But if you're not, then the movie enhances history, because then when you do mm -hmm. learn about it, you're like, oh, 
like just go watch the iron giant that's what it was like that's what you know right. the way that this town feels that's how everyone felt for like a decade or like for what two decades like it was a while um <laughs> i don't know how much of it was like super war. intense but it was quite a while yeah the cold yeah. war is like really long but yeah i don't know how much of it was like the like super intense part of it mm-hmm. but yeah just like if you change the setting of this movie it entirely changes it, it just takes all the power out of what the setting can do for the theme Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's kind of like what you were saying earlier, Alex, of this idea of all these things are working together, like a portrait of Lady on Fire, <laughs> where like, they're all just enhancing everything in a, mm-hmm. in a really powerful way. Exactly. Yeah, my lesson is, is kind of just, uh, you know, I was really impressed with the visual storytelling. And, you know, I think that's something that animation can and, you know, does do often is like, like, I almost want to watch the movie again, on mute, and see if that would like engage me in a different way. Like if, if that would shut off parts of my brain that get in the way of me just like, like soaking in everything. And I think the story would be like kind of just as powerful. And, and Trisha, you brought up that, uh, the, that moment early on when the giant first lands where, you know, the ship guy is like, that's the lighthouse. And then the head turns and it's the, like, I feel like this film is like every scene has some like a version of that where it just feels like the visual momentum is constant it, it's surprising you it's dynamic it it just keeps it engaging to watch while also constantly telling the story in a creative and fun way mm-hmm. i very much appreciate that and and the care to use the word that you used alex the the care that goes into designing a a story like this and to make all that happen so thumbs up visual storytelling (laughs) iron giant i'm i am superman (laughs) did i do it he just says superman (laughs) i am groot i understand that casting 100 percent now yeah diesel is very good at getting a lot of emotion out of not very many words. Not yeah, many, yeah, like saying, saying a couple of words in his deep medieval voice. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? So I watched the Small Axe films by Ooh. Steve McQueen, the, the, the current Steve McQueen. And uh, that's small A-X-E, not A-C-T-S, as my girlfriend thought when I was telling her about it for like <laughs> the week during which I was like, she's like, oh, I, that, you were saying axe? But it's based on this uh, proverb that, if you are the big tree, we are the small axe because it, it depicts the lives of West Indian immigrants in London from the 1960s to the 1980s. Mm. Uh, obviously, mostly the racial injustice that they were dealing with and how and how they were dealing with it. Uh, a lot of the characters are real people, so it's talking about their lives. But in some cases, it's there are no real characters. It's doing a thematic thing or it's doing just sort of a this is what this is like. It was presented as a series on the BBC. It's now on Amazon Prime. And it's interesting because it was like a series but of movies and like Mm -hmm. most of the movies are an hour to an hour and a half long so they're sort of not even presented as like full feature length films Hmm. the the first one is mangrove it's two hours and it's the only one that really feels like oh this is like a a film like i could have seen this in a theater uh the two leads are sean parks and letitia wright and they're just both insanely good and they have all Mm -hmm. these like great scenes together letitia wright now is joining daniel kaluuya as a cast member of black panther who then went on to play a Black Panther this year. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the other four movies are all, like I said, 60 to 90 minutes long, and they sort of don't try to be movies like especially lovers rock the second one it's it's almost it's just like we're at a dance party and we're just kind of watching people do stuff and by the end you're like 
I watched a story, but there are just long periods where you're just sort of like meandering through the crowd, watching things happen and stuff in a, in a way that feels really beautiful. And the one with John Boyega, Red, White and Blue, it feels like the pilot for a show that I'm mad I can't watch now <laughs> because it's sort of like hmm. this great story about this about this police officer. And then at the end, I'm like, cool, I want to see what happens next because it's not like and then that's the end of his life. It's like, oh, this is the beginning of his life. Let's see episode two. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's five films all based around this same setting and theme and, and narrative that all none of them have anything to do with each other, but they all speak to each other very clearly in a way that makes them really interesting to watch them all within the course of, you know, a few days or something. So, yeah, small acts. Nice. I've heard really good things. Yeah. Alex, what have you been watching? So <laughs> I uh, watched a recent 60 Minutes episode, which was about the subject of UAPs, which is the like fancy government way of saying UFOs. It's unidentified Ooh. aerial phenomenon. UFOs are having a moment right now because <laughs> basically the government's having to admit that they've seen a bunch of stuff that they can't explain. And it's happened enough times now that like the Pentagon is like investigating and going to release like unclassified bunch of documents in June. So 60 Minutes was interviewing a guy who was working for the Pentagon, like leading the investigation. And I'm just going to read a quote of what he said. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that can evade radar and that can fly through air and water and possibly space. And by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's the kind of things we're seeing. Wow. <laughs> so this is 60 minutes. This is like the most boring of news, you know, programs. And you bring multiple <laughs> Navy pilots, people at the Pentagon talking about like, crazy things they've seen and can't explain and it's happened enough times now like there's pilots saying they saw stuff every day for like years over the pacific ocean and they don't know if it's foreign countries have crazy technology we don't know about if it's even from this planet like it's an actual legitimate news story it's an iron giant I, and it was very <laughs> appropriate because then i watched the iron giant the next day and i was like wow this feels very on theme check out the 60 minutes episode about uaps it's very interesting I think it's more Flight of the Navigator, which we can talk oh, about another time. Uh -huh. That was a good one. I liked that one. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something out there. The government is admitting it uh, and they don't know what it is. So, wow, that is what is happening. I love it. <laughs> it probably I want it to be aliens. I, I really do, too. Like I, like, I hope it is. <laughs> I feel like it'd be a good sign. One of the stories that they had these two Navy pilots on the show to talk about and they're like, we are normal people. We don't believe in UFOs. We would think this is crazy if anybody else told us this. But we are both in our fighters at the same time. And there is a tic-tac-shaped object the size of our jets with absolutely no features on its surface, like moving through the air and mimicking our movements and then disappearing. So, like, Wow. That's the kind of things like Navy pilots are saying. So just I just want to know what's going on. I'm really excited <laughs> about it in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> love it excellent i guess kind of in this the vein of now military things and wars and all that stuff uh malcolm gladwell came out with a, a new book the a new audio book that then became a book it's like a extrapolation from uh like a four-part series he did on his podcast and so it's called the bomber mafia a dream a temptation and the longest night of the second world war and it's a dive into both war and World War II done in a way that I've never seen before, where it's it's looking at 
like fighter jets and uh, I guess not jets, but, you know, bombers and this idea of post-World War I, which was this awful war in which millions of people died. There was this idea that if we could use bombers, we could use these surgical strikes to hit certain points in the enemy's territory and we could end wars without big armies having to fight. And it was this, you know, this dream of like, can we fight a quote unquote clean war? Hmm. And so it's kind of following these obsessive idealists as they try to make this thing happen. And it goes into, you know, even just the mechanics of how do you, if you're flying a plane going 300 miles an hour and you're thousands of feet in the air, how do you hit a bomb? It goes into, or how do you drop a bomb on a thing? So it talks about this, like the technical stuff, but it also talks about just kind of like the psychology of people and the psychology of war. And what does it look like when an idea that you've invested your entire identity into shatters in front of you and all of this is kind of happening during you know the second great war and so the stakes are high and it kind of results in this insane the night where probably the most human lives were ever lost in in a short period of time so it's this really epic thing i might have even talked about you know this is part of his his podcast series that came out last year but this goes even further in depth and it's just a really fascinating look at war and human psychology and if you're into fighters and bombers, there's lots of, of fun stuff there. So The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, definitely recommend. Nice. I mean, I'm very into World War II planes. I think you would like it. I, mm-hmm. think, I think it would be up, up your alley. Yeah. And Trisha, last but not least, I know you watched something on CuriosityStream, who is the sponsor of this episode. CuriosityStream is the streaming service featuring thousands of documentaries and nonfiction titles. Trisha. What did you watch? So I was clicking around on Curiosity Stream, looking for something else to scratch my documentary nonfiction storytelling itch here. And I saw that they have this Eames documentary about Charles and Ray Eames, the artists and furniture designers uh, who I trust you all have heard of, who were a husband and wife team. Anyway, they, this documentary came out in 2011. It's called Eames, the Architect and the Painter. And it's directed by Jason Cohn and Bill Jersey. And it was really fascinating. I basically knew nothing about the life of the Eames, who they were, how they got together, how they ended up making the most iconic furniture in American history, probably. But they have a lot of amazing uh, footage obviously, and, and really great interviews with people who worked in the Eames like design office. And so lots of great interviews. There's also an interview with Paul Schrader, you know, who's a filmmaker and, and screenwriter that I really love. And uh, anyway, he has a lot of interesting things to say because the Eames also made films, which I didn't know that either. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot about them. Anyway, it's a really great documentary over on Curiosity Stream. Awesome. If you, listener, want to check out Eames, the architect and the painter, and support Beyond the Screenplay, sign up for Curiosity Stream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay. The link is also in the show notes. And when you sign up for Curiosity Stream, you get free access to Nebula, the streaming service featuring exclusive and ad-free content from some of the best educational creators out there, including many of our past guests, Lindsay Ellis, Maggie Mae Fish, Just Right, and Patrick Willems, whose short film conclusion to his ongoing storyline will be premiering exclusively on Nebula. So sign up for Curiosity Stream at curiositystream.com slash screenplay, or by using the link in the show notes. 
Well, this has been our conversation about the Iron Giant. We want to say thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. As always, send us a tweet and say hi. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend about it. Consider supporting us on Patreon, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.